0: Christ saves. Christ and His finished work. Not my belief. Not my faith. Not my understanding. Nothing that I do. Get that in your head. Your faith doesn't save you. Your faith is merely the channel through which you receive salvation from God.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How exactly is salvation accomplished? Is there a role that you the individual plays? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom has part 16 of his current series for us, titled This Is Your Life. Scripture always speaks of salvation being by or through faith never because of or on account of faith. Grace alone is the cause, faith alone is the means. And as you'll be reminded today, your faith doesn't save you. Your faith is merely the channel through which you receive salvation from God. Faith, like salvation, does not originate in you. It is a gift from God. But that leads to another question. If your obedience and efforts can never achieve salvation, How then does obedience correlate with salvation? Let's join our teacher now to find out on The Word Unleashed.
0: The emotional response to the facts about Christ and salvation. This is being convinced that the knowledge you gained about Christ from the Scripture and about yourself is factually true and that Christ is what you need. Both of these are absolutely essential to faith. There must be a knowledge of the facts about Christ. There must be an assent to the truth of those things, but that is not saving faith. There is a third element that is required for it to be saving faith. It is trust or fiducia. This is the volitional response to Christ, and this, folks, is the heart of faith. This is the difference between saving faith and non-saving faith. In fact, if I had time, I would take you back to a number of Old Testament references because this is the heart of Old Testament faith. Over and over again, the word trust is used. It's reliance. John Murray, in his excellent book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says faith is cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ, a transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources, that's trust in ourselves, to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. This is faith. It means transferring all of your reliance for pardon and righteousness away from yourself and your own resources in complete and total abandonment to Christ resting entirely upon Him and Him alone for salvation. We must have faith. The question is, in what? Whenever Scripture identifies the object of saving faith, it is never the truth in general, but always the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, look back at Ephesians chapter 1. Here Paul doesn't say faith in Christ in Ephesians 2 verse 8. But in Ephesians 1, he does. Ephesians 1, verse 15, he says, For this reason I too, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. That's where faith rests. John 1, 12, As many as received Him. John 3, 16, Whoever believes in Him. Galatians 2, 16, We have believed in Jesus Christ. The key issue about your faith is, is what is its object. I've counseled a number of people through the years, including even a pastor of many years, who have become introspective about their faith. They look back at that experience they had many years ago, and they ask themselves questions like this, did I have enough faith? That's not the question. The question is, what's the object of your faith? One of my favorite Puritan quotes is this, It is not the quantity of thy faith that shall save thee. A drop of water is as true water as the whole ocean. So a little faith is as true faith as the greatest. It is not the measure of thy faith that saves thee. It is the blood that it grips to that saves thee. Spurgeon wrote, The weakness of your faith will not destroy you. A trembling hand may receive a gracious gift. You see, it's the object of your faith that matters, not the amount. It has to be in Christ. I remember that night as a high school student when I came to faith in Christ. I'd made several professions of faith before, been baptized a couple of times, or at least gotten wet, and that night as I met with my pastor at the time, God gave him great insight because I sort of explained my spiritual odyssey to him and explained how unsettled my heart was and I'd prayed a prayer in the past and I had gone through a plan of salvation and, and embraced that and God gave him great wisdom and he said this to me that night and I've never forgotten it and it comes back to me often. He said, salvation is not in a prayer and salvation is not in a plan Salvation is in a person. It's in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit just used that to remove the blinders from my eyes and I saw that it was all about Jesus Christ. It was all about Him and my following Him, my being devoted to Him, receiving Him, believing in Him. You must have faith. We must affirm that salvation is through or by faith. So those are the truths that we must affirm about salvation. When you think about salvation, you must embrace the fact that it is a spiritual rescue accomplished by God, it is a past event with continuing results, it is entirely by grace, and it is through faith. You must affirm that. That is the gospel. But Paul, being a very wise teacher, and knowing that our hearts are prone to stray from the truth, even with it put that clearly, moves ahead to tell us what we must deny about salvation. That's what we must affirm about salvation. But then he says, here's what you must deny about salvation. If you're going to embrace the biblical teaching about salvation, here are several statements we must deny. Number one, we must deny that anything in us is the source or cause of our salvation. Look at verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, there's a problem in this verse, and one that you're probably familiar with. The problem is with the demonstrative pronoun, that. The question, since the early days of the church, is what does that refer to? And essentially, for 2,000 years, three answers have been offered. One answer says that that refers to grace. Now I think this one seems the least likely because grace, by definition, is not of ourselves. So it would make no sense to say grace which isn't of ourselves. A second option or answer that has been posed through the years is that that refers to salvation. And the third is that the word that refers to faith or believing. Now, these last two views, salvation and faith, there have been good men and continue to be good men on both sides of this issue. In its grammatical context, and I'm not going to explain to you all the intricacies of the Greek involved here, but in its grammatical context, there is a growing consensus that the demonstrative pronoun, that, refers primarily to salvation. Paul means, then, that our salvation is not of ourselves. Literally, he says, it is not out of yourselves. So with that, we could paraphrase it like this. Let me paraphrase the verse to sort of give you the sense. Paul's saying this, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this salvation is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. In other words, there is nothing in you or in me that is the source or the cause of God's rescuing us. You and I, if we're going to come to embrace a biblical gospel, must deny that there is anything out of us, anything in us, that makes our salvation more likely. We must reject the idea entirely that who we are, that is, our background, our family heritage, our spiritual heritage, our personal righteousness, anything about us, contributes in the slightest degree to a right standing before God. We must absolutely deny that salvation finds its cause or source in anything in us. There's a second denial that Paul makes here. Not only that anything in us is the source or cause of our salvation, but we must also deny that saving faith originates in us or is the cause of our salvation. We must deny that saving faith originates inside of us or is the cause that lies behind our salvation. Now, if our salvation in its entirety, as he's just said, is not out of us, he is also saying at the same time that faith is not out of us either, because faith is part of the salvation God grants. I think that's why there's been so much of a split in the interpretation of this passage, what Paul means here. Because I think the grammar argues for that, referring to salvation, but the context and the syntax argue that faith is included as well. So in other words, I think Paul intends to say both. Let me paraphrase it again for you with that understanding. Here's how we could paraphrase the verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith And that entire package of salvation, including saving faith, is not out of you, it is the gift of God. Faith, like salvation, does not originate in us, it is a gift God gives. Christians believe. The Bible teaches that all true Christians believe in Christ, but we do not, in fact, we cannot believe on our own initiative. Acts 13 48 says, As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Acts 16 14, a woman named Lydia, you remember Lydia? This is from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics there in Philippi, a worshipper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Acts eighteen twenty seven speaks of those who have believed through grace. But perhaps the clearest and most direct statement comes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, that says, "'To you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, to believe in Him.'" "'To you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, to believe in Him.'" Faith is a gift. It does not originate in us. It is a gift from God to us. Neither does our believing in Christ become in any way the cause of our salvation. Faith is not the reason God accepts you. In other words, God didn't decide, well, you know, that person doesn't really have righteousness, so I'll accept their faith instead. Scripture always speaks of salvation being by or through faith, never because of or on account of faith. Grace is the cause, faith the means. B.B. Warfield, the great American theologian, writes this, it is not faith that saves, but faith in Christ. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith, but in the object of faith, we could not more radically misconceive the biblical representation of faith than by transferring to faith even the smallest fraction of that saving energy which is attributed in the Scriptures solely to Christ Himself. Faith doesn't save. Lloyd-Jones puts it like this, we must always be careful never to say that it is our believing that saves us. Belief does not save. Faith does not save. Christ saves. Christ and His finished work Not my belief, not my faith, not my understanding, nothing that I do. Get that in your head. Your faith doesn't save you. Your faith is merely the channel through which you receive salvation from God. At the conference, I gave an illustration that I think puts this clearly. Let me share it with you again. Imagine that you were traveling across country, but your car failed out in the desert somewhere, and you suddenly found yourself stranded in the desert, and after a couple of days, dying of thirst. But in God's good providence, I happened to pass you and drive past, found you, saw the car, recognized it, and in my car, I had a container with all the water that you needed to survive. But you had no container to hold the water. So I go back in my trunk, and I fish around, and I found a cup. And I gave you the water that you so desperately needed. That cup did not merit the water I gave you. It was merely the means by which you received it. And I'm the one who gave you the cup. That's exactly how it is with faith. It doesn't merit anything. It's just the means by which we receive the gift of a right standing before God, and God even gives us the cup. Faith has been granted to you, the Scripture says. A third flawed view of salvation that Paul denies here, that we must deny as well, is that any human work, even obedience to God, contributes in any way to our salvation. That any human work, even obedience to God, contributes in any way to our salvation. Verse 9, not as a result of works. Paul uses two expressions to describe this reality. One is by the works of the law, and the other is by works. By the works of the law refers to earning salvation by obeying the Bible, by obeying the commands of God. And he says it can't be done. You can't earn salvation by obeying the Bible, by obeying the commands of God. First of all, you don't obey them. You can obey them. It can't be done. Then he uses the expression, by works. This is a more general expression. It includes obedience to the law, but it is much more inclusive. It refers to any human effort, not just obedience to God's law, but any human effort, work, or achievement designed to earn a right standing before God. Paul here says in Ephesians 2 that salvation does not result from our own efforts of any kind. Paul makes this point over and over again. In Romans chapter 3, he talks about the first of them, the works of the law. Romans 3, 20, he says, by the works of the law, that is by obeying the law of God, no flesh will be declared righteous in his sight. For by the law comes the knowledge of sin. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, he uses the other expression. He says, God saved us, Not according to our works. That is, to our general efforts, to anything we've done. So the bottom line is whether you're talking about obedience to God's commands or whether you're talking about some human effort of any kind, nothing will give you salvation. Nothing you have done or can do, listen carefully, nothing you have done or can do or ever will do will earn one step toward a right relationship with God. Humanitarian efforts, generosity, baptism, church attendance, prayer, you fill in the blank. Nothing. In fact, think for a moment about the very best moment you've ever had in life. The most righteous thing you have ever done. The one thing that your mind goes to is the most altruistically motivated, the most clearly evidencing the love of God think about that event for a moment and let me then tell you how God thinks about that event Isaiah says all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment the very best you've ever done is to God like a menstruous rag and me as well our obedience our efforts can never achieve salvation there's a fourth and final flawed view of salvation we must deny. And that's that, sal- that true, let me say it again, that the true gospel leaves any ground for boasting before God. That the true gospel leaves any ground for boasting before God. Verse 9 ends with, so that no one may boast. Here we get to the point behind these two verses. Why did God accomplish salvation the way He did? He did it, not only according to verse 7, to display the glory of His grace, but in verses 8 and 9, we learn that He did it to destroy all human boasting. God designed the true gospel and true salvation to do this. That means that the true gospel will always demolish and destroy boasting. Any view of salvation that has its source in man or some contribution by man is not the gospel. Whenever you hear the gospel uh, supposedly presented and it allows man to boast, it cannot be the true gospel, because God has constructed the true gospel, the true message, so that no one may boast. And if we contributed even the smallest ounce to our salvation, we would have cause to boast. That's what Paul says in Romans 4-2. He says, if Abraham was declared righteous by his own efforts, by his works, he has something to boast about. But then he says, but not before God. In other words, he's saying, that's impossible. God has made sure that doesn't happen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul puts it like this. God's chosen all of the weak and foolish and ignoble and base things of the world. Why? Verse 29, so that no one may boast before God. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, so that, verse 31, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. God has achieved everything in salvation so that our only boast is in God and not in ourselves. This is a clear indication of whether someone understands salvation by grace and has become truly saved. Ask yourself this question. Has the salvation that you claim destroyed in you every possible cause for boasting in yourself. False believers boast in their own merit and in their own efforts. True believers see nothing in themselves or their own works that make them acceptable to God. In fact, let me show you that this is exactly what will happen at the final judgment. Turn with me to Matthew 25 as we finish our time together. Matthew 25. At the judgment, here we have a glimpse of the judgment that is probably the judgment that occurs at the end of the tribulation period with those who survive it, called the judgment of the nations. Verse 31, when the Son of Man, this is Matthew 25 verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the peoples will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, the goats on the left. Then the king says to those on his right, to the sheep, Come you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he gives this explanation that evidences a changed life. He says... For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when? When did we do that? What I want you to see is that the righteous not only don't claim their works as the grounds for their acceptance with God... They downplay them and frankly seem unaware that they've done anything good at all. But contrast that with how the unrighteous respond. When when Christ says to them, you didn't do these things, look at verse 44. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we fail to do this? You see the difference? They're saying, we've done what we ought to have done. In fact, they even challenge Christ's assessment of their character, of who they are, and of what they've done in their lives. Here's the point. The only people who will point to their works at the judgment are those who have never known the depths of their own sin or the riches of God's grace. That's how the Christian life begins. You remember what Christ said in Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the beggars in spirit for theirs to them belongs the kingdom of God blessed are those who realize their spiritual bankruptcy for only they inherit the kingdom of God that's what Christ said that's where that's where a relationship with God starts is when you realize you have absolutely nothing to offer God you are bankrupt and all you can do is beg and beggars don't boast about what they've been given. They give thanks and praise to the one who's given them everything. Let's pray together.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 16 of his series, This Is Your Life. Tom will have part 17 for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, Exalting God's Glory.